Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Arc Invest's FYI podcast. I'm Yassine, and I cover cryptocurrencies at Arc. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Andreas Antonopoulos, author of Mastering Bitcoin and the Internet of Money, and one of my favorite educators on Bitcoin. I'm also joined by Arjun Balaji, who I've had the honor to get to know over the last year, who will be co-hosting this episode with me. So welcome, guys, and thanks for being on. Happy to be here, Yassine. Thank you. We had a brief discussion before recording this podcast, but I wanted to say it so that everyone understands this. Andreas, I want to start out by saying that, again, this is uh, pretty surreal for me. My first exposure to Bitcoin was through your 37-minute introduction to Bitcoin video on YouTube. And so to think that almost two years later, we're on a podcast together, it's pretty incredible. Uh, At the time, I didn't really have Twitter, so YouTube was my main source of consumption, and I stumbled upon your videos. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. I'm glad it's working. Given that we only have about half an hour for this podcast, I want to focus the discussion around the evolving narratives in the crypto space and the resulting battles that we see raging within crypto as a result of these narratives. Over the past, we've seen things like money crypto versus tech crypto. We've seen Silicon Valley versus cypherpunk. And so with these evolving narratives, we've also seen a lot of these ideological battles that rage within crypto. Last month, Arjun and I wrote a piece called The Conflict of Crypto Visions. Arjun, if you want to go into further into how we kind of structured uh, the framework around that. I read that piece, by the way. So good work. It was interesting. Thank you, Andreas. I think that in the piece, we really fleshed out the work of Thomas Sowell. And Thomas Sowell, he's previously articulated, he's a political theorist, who's articulated different visions when making public policy decisions oriented around constrained views of the world versus unconstrained views of the world, which we thought very much applied to a number of the ways that people view cryptocurrencies, which really boils down to what we consider ideological differences. And so the reason why we wanted to have Andreas on is because Andreas, you've gone very, very deep on many different cryptocurrencies, and you've been in and around this industry for a long time. You wrote books on Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so we thought it would be really compelling to have someone who has such a wide range of experiences and perspectives weigh in on what you see as the crucial differences between the different factions in the cryptocurrency industry. Absolutely. Reading that article, I think I identified most closely with the unconstrained vision. And I've done some talks recently, one that's going to be published this coming week, about the idea that we're not playing a zero-sum game here and that the zero-sum mentality has infected crypto a bit 
And I, I talk about why I don't think we're playing a zero-sum game. So I would say that puts me squarely in the unconstrained perspective and informs my attitudes towards the crypto ecosystem as a whole. Yep. And when we're considering the game that is being played, how do you see the game being different for, say, something like Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Bitcoin, I see it as Bitcoin is trying to become a global money. And so do you see Ethereum's path or goal as being different from that? It's absolutely different from that. And that difference is not simply a matter of how you apply it. It's in its DNA. Um, the two systems have evolved, not in a random mutation, in a directed evolution perspective. And that evolution has been informed by dozens and dozens of design choices. Now, one of the perspectives that happens, and this is where I might agree more with a constrained vision, is that engineering involves design trade-offs. And these design trade-offs, in many cases, are inevitable. There do exist engineering dilemmas and trilemmas where you have to choose which things to optimize on. And when you make that choice, you necessarily de-optimize or lose something in one aspect of the system. You can't do everything. And I think that's inherent in the engineering of any technology. And then those choices are kind of cyclical or reflexive, meaning that the culture of the community informs how those choices are made. And then those choices once made affect what applications the systems can be used on, which then affects the culture. And then you have a full cycle. So the early design decisions and trade-offs that were made for Bitcoin made it suitable to be a very robust, very secure nation-state resistant, censorship-resistant form of global money, which then attracted more people who saw that vision, which then strengthened those design trade-offs in that direction. And the design trade-offs in Ethereum are completely different. They started from an unconstrained software engineering mentality that was looking for a broader set of problems to solve and made different design trade-offs. And these then attracted a different culture of people, which then informed the next set of design trade-offs. And essentially, that means that the two systems evolve in divergent directions, and they can occupy different niches, but they can't actually occupy the same niche at the same time. Precisely. And I really like that you highlight that. They are trying to accomplish two different things. And as such, the acknowledgement that there are fundamental trade-offs, for instance, with performance and security should be acknowledged and then should be accounted for what the end outcome of that is. But my question is, do you think that there is an understanding of these design trade-offs within these communities. So for instance, with Bitcoin, the idea, for instance, that proof of work is wasteful or that you're trading off computational inefficiency or redundancy for social scalability, for instance, to create this global sovereign money, is there merit then for the Ethereum community to go and say, we can replace Bitcoin with our own programmable money that is as secure, that can be built on top of the Ethereum platform without really an acknowledgement that these trade-offs have been explicit and solve a specific case? Oh yeah, that cuts both ways. So in both communities, there are people who will listen to what I just said and then go, comma, 
but we can also do what they're doing. We can also do the other use case. And that's basically either ignoring or downplaying how severe these trade-offs are, or simply reflecting implicit assumptions about what this application is. So if you think that everything is money, then a system that does money well can do everything. If you think that not everything is money, then a system that can only do money can't do everything, and vice versa. This is a constant debate. So being someone who sees value in both systems and sees them as non-competing can be something that people who are new to the space appreciate and understand, but when I'm exposed to the various communities that are a bit more entrenched in each one of the systems, they object to this, right? So I hear no end of criticism from both sides. The Bitcoin people say, yes, but we can also do robust, flexible, smart contracts with a lot of expressivity. And Ethereum people say, yes, but we can also do robust, secure money. And the truth is, you can on the margins, do those things, but you'll never do them as well as the system that actually had to make the design trade-offs to do them well. So you can poorly do them, but that's not a good answer, right? Ethereum community, especially among the maximalists in Ethereum, if you want to call them that, will say that we can build Bitcoin as a token on top of Ethereum with a constrained monetary policy and all of the security characteristics of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin maximalists will say, yes, you can also do smart contracts on top of Bitcoin and reference Omni, Counterparty, Rootstock, and other platforms that give you that ability. And the truth is, neither of those statements is really meaningful because in both cases, you can only do it poorly, in my opinion. Got it. No, that was a really good articulation, Andreas. And so moving away from some of these macro differences, like having some sort of Turing-complete smart contract platform versus having a very low-level scripting language that doesn't allow for a lot of expressivity. Do you see other features like privacy making for meaningful distinctions? There are some cryptocurrencies and some groups that really, really value privacy. There are other people, say even in the Bitcoin camp, that don't think that integrating more privacy-oriented features in the base layer protocol, they don't think that that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, again, this is that feedback loop of a culture choosing the trade-offs and those trade-offs informing who's attracted for the next mainstreaming event, right? So keep in mind that the culture behind cryptocurrencies is constantly changing. In the process of mainstreaming, you're bringing in people who do not have an implicit understanding of the principles on which the system was built and have their own ideas, right? So you get the original ideology, if you like, the farming ideology is constantly being diluted by more people joining the fray. But there is this deep-seated echo of that culture in the design trade-offs that have already happened, and it's primarily in the things you've lost. The things you can't do because you made design trade-offs then inform what applications you can run. Privacy is one of the differentiators. There's this interesting conundrum, which is if you want to build a new crypto blockchain-y thing, right, you have to make some design choices. If you only differentiate a tiny bit, you run smack into the early adopter, first mover advantage network effect problem, which means if I make something that is Bitcoin-ish, 
that niche is already occupied fully by Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is thriving in that niche. And it already has adoption, name recognition, first mover advantage, network effect, and all of the liquidity exchanges, on-ramps, off-ramps, applications, API software. So if you make something Bitcoinish, it fails because Bitcoin will always be more Bitcoinish than the thing you made, right? You can never overcome that. So you have to differentiate more than that. At some point, you differentiate enough that you shift into another application space entirely. And at that point, it's almost like speciesization, right? You formed a new species. It's different enough that it can no longer mingle. And it can no longer occupy the same niche. And so that's the interesting conundrum, which is if you don't differentiate enough, you compete with the player that's already in that niche and you lose because they have first mover advantage and network effect. And if you differentiate enough, then you no longer compete because you're occupying different application spaces. And we'll see that. Like The question then becomes, is privacy a big enough differentiator that privacy coins will become their own niche that's separate from money systems? Or is that something that Bitcoin can exhibit as a trait without too many trade-offs? And since it has early mover advantage, occupy that niche entirely. And a lot of that question hinges on one important trade-off, which is if you introduce very strong privacy protections in the base layer, you run the risk of inflation bugs. And we've only recently discovered this. And it changes the equation slightly because that's a trade-off that could damage one of the core principles that Bitcoin already has, which is the sound money, monetary policy, hard money, in order to get more privacy. Depending on how big that trade-off is, it's either one that Bitcoin can make, in which case there is no space for privacy coins outside of Bitcoin, or it's one that Bitcoin cannot make, in which case the privacy coin space becomes a completely separate niche. And sound money and private money can't coexist. You have to move between the two. That's not clear to me. I don't think it's clear to anyone. Anybody who expresses clarity and certainty should be viewed with suspicion. <laughs> that sounds about right. I think that where a lot of, at least per my interpretation, where a lot of the really sort of hardcore Bitcoin maximalists seem to take offense with some of your views is around basically viewing all non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies or crypto assets as having the same path to success as Bitcoin does. Ethereum, for example, wants to be a viable platform in 10 or 20 years. A lot of people believe that Ether needs to go through this monetization process that Bitcoin is going through now. So in that view, I think that people see Bitcoin and Ether as somewhat mutually exclusive because all of these tokens, these sort of pegless tokens, all seem to be targeting becoming some form of reserve currency. Is it accurate to say that you see the difference in the future as people making consumer choices about what currencies they feel ideologically aligned with? I think there's a whole spectrum of reasons why people would make choices. And I think part of the issue here is that if you view the world as people being motivated primarily by rational market forces where they make rational decisions, then you can easily go straight into a maximalist position. Hard money displaces all other forms of money in the long term. 
But what we see in the world is not that. And part of that has to do with friction, switching costs between currencies, which allow for and create a proliferation of a very fragmented currency space, right? Otherwise, gold would win every time, regardless of the other characteristics it might have or how useful it is or how transportable it is and how flexible it is. People would just choose that. But there's friction, right? So the question is, will there be friction in these new systems? What kind of friction would it be? And will there be other reasons why people choose different tokens to do different things? I actually think that the trade-off that Ethereum makes undermines Ether as a monetary token. Because if Ether is seen to take on a store value characteristic, and becomes valuable as an investment itself, that fatally undermines its function as a utility token whose purpose is to meter computing use, prevent denial of service, and reconcile a Turing-complete language with constrained resources. That's the role of Ether. Ether is truly a utility token for using the utility of smart contracts, and it's used to meter computation. If it becomes a store of value, that distorts its function in the marketplace as a utility token. If people hold Ether for other reasons and drive its price up, it stops serving the primary purpose of being a utility token very well. And as a result, that distortion undermines it. I think there's a room for that role of a pure utility token that doesn't have significant store of value. And I think the friction to change from your store value token to your utility token for one application can be made small enough that you can make that change very quickly at very low cost. And therefore, you don't have to only choose one. It would seem like if that was the case, then the idea of monetary maximalism would hold, where if it is only kind of a utility token that doesn't really serve the store value purpose, then very minimal value will accrue to ETH as a token. And be given the frictionless nature with the low switching costs, then you know the whole high velocity argument makes it such that ETH is basically just economically abstracted away, in which case the underlying value is minimal. Do you subscribe to that philosophy? Or do you think that we will be in a world 10, 20 years from now where our wallet will hold 10, 15, 20 different tokens, one as this primary global money, in which case likely Bitcoin, and then the other as almost like a a niche use cases for utility specifically? So if I were to answer that, I would start with all things being equal and in the presence of an efficient market with very low friction, then blah, blah, blah. The problem with starting a paragraph that way is that all things are not equal and friction is never zero. So yes, that would support the maximalist position, all things being equal, markets being free and friction being near zero. But people are not rational, markets are not free, things are not equal and friction is not zero. So we're going to fall somewhere in between, meaning that I think we are going to see multi-currency wallets Those multi-currency wallets are going to make smart decisions on their own, just like a router makes in the background to decide how to allocate the resources you need to do your job for any particular application at any moment in time. And that they'll have a tendency, perhaps a very strong tendency, to keep the majority of the funds in 
essentially store value cold storage with the occasional transfer into utility tokens to do a specific job. And if the friction is very low, then you're going to have almost all of the funds in store value. If the friction is high, then you're going to have a higher percentage in utility tokens because the switching costs are not worth switching back and forth all the time. And that really depends. I don't think it makes a difference in terms of how these things are adopted, though. Switching gears a little bit, you wrote a book on Ethereum recently, so there's the plug. What are you excited about? Why did it catch your attention? You've obviously been following it for a while, but what made you decide to write a book on it? What are you seeing there that you got really excited about and decided that you needed to embark on that project? Well, first of all, I've been interested in Ethereum since before the paper was published. I got a preview copy before it was made public, and I had a conversation with Vitalik. The first question I asked him was, why are you not doing this on top of Bitcoin? And then we had an interesting conversation about how you build a security model that has consensus incorporates the operation of the smart contract and the state transitions of a smart contract, which persuaded me that that was a trade-off that was worth making, meaning that you can't do that on top of Bitcoin, not in a meaningful way. And doing it on its own blockchain has benefits, benefits to applications that are not just money. And so I was instantly interested in that. And I look at it from the perspective of a programmer. A fully programmable blockchain with a Turing-complete language can do certain things that, in my opinion, Bitcoin can't. And that's okay because two different sets of applications. So I was always interested in it. I've been dabbling with Ethereum. I wanted to learn more about it and anchor my understanding. And the best way I know to do that is to try and teach it. So that's what I did. My book is about how the technology of virtual machine blockchains work. It's not specific to Ethereum necessarily, in that the same things apply to half a dozen other blockchain that operate with a virtual machine. And it's certainly not a suggestion that you should invest in Ether as an asset, which is often a misunderstanding. I'm not saying this is a good investment. I'm not even saying that this is going to be a successful project. I'm saying it's exploring some interesting questions. One of the advantages of having Ethereum in the ecosystem is that Ethereum is under a lot more scaling pressure than Bitcoin, which means that there are the incentives, the funds, and the people working on scaling and solving hard scaling problems are in Ethereum more so than they are in Bitcoin. Interesting. So what's your biggest reservation about Ethereum, specifically with this transition from ETH 1.0 to 2.0, with this long-awaited transition into proof-of-stake? Where do you see the potential pitfalls of Ethereum? Oh, there's lots of pitfalls all over the place. I think scaling is much harder to do, and the trade-offs that need to be done for scaling are much harder. Proof-of-stake has different in my opinion, a different security model than proof of work. And that has yet to be explored in strong adversarial environments. And more importantly, at a very fundamental level, a very expressive language like that used in virtual machine blockchains like Ethereum opens a much bigger attack surface for security problems, which means that you have a much faster pace of innovation, but you also have to iterate much longer before you can get code that is mature enough to withstand security attacks. And we've already seen that in terms of, for example, building a multi-sig in Ethereum 
which is much more expressive, but actually having that multi-sig be robust enough and secure enough to be able to put a lot of money into it. That's one of the trade-offs, right? You trade pace of innovation for time to maturity and security. It's going to take longer for Ethereum contracts, even the simplest ones, to reach maturity and security than it takes for a base layer multi-sig in Bitcoin, for example. But the trade-off there is that you don't have to be as conservative in your development. Bitcoin moves a lot slower in the base layer because of that trade-off. Right, right. On the question of scalability, we have a number of different scaling proposals that are in various stages of development across a number of blockchains. So Bitcoin has Lightning. On Ethereum, you have other similar payment channel implementations. In addition to other proposals like sharding, which future scaling proposals do you think are most compelling? I was particularly interested because you noted that the Ethereum community has a lot more people working on scaling problems than Bitcoin. What are the scaling solutions you find most promising? And where do you think that projects can potentially should be focusing on but might not be? So the whole sharding, beacon chain, Polkadot space is fascinating. And I don't know if it's going to work. And I don't know what the security constraints and assumptions are going to be when it does work, if it does work. But I think it's great that we can explore those things because those might have applicability in Bitcoin as well and vice versa. So the thing is, I think it's a bad idea to look at this space from the perspective of a zero-sum game horse race where we have to pick winners, where there's first place and then everybody who's not in first place is a loser, right? I think that's a wrong perspective. And the reason it's a wrong perspective is because it's not one race. There are different application spaces and there are different things that work for different application spaces. And so from that perspective, picking winners, first, you have to say, for what application? And we don't know what the applications are going to be. A lot of these systems will find a natural place to fit that maybe the designers hadn't even considered as the natural place. We don't even know if Bitcoin is going to be store value, medium of exchange, or a bit of both yet. And you can't necessarily design those and direct them. The marketplace chooses So of all of the scaling solutions, I'm a minimally maximalist, maximally interested technologist, meaning that I want to see all of these explored. And I'm glad that we're exploring many different avenues. There isn't a singular solution that solves these problems, and there isn't a singular direction that is correct for every application. Very interesting. I want to end on one last question. There's one thing that I noticed that you do really effectively, and it's your ability to articulate the arguments of an opposing side or narrative that you don't necessarily subscribe to, and oftentimes more effectively than people who do subscribe to it. And I found that by doing so, it adds a lot more legitimacy to whatever the argument you're presenting is. When I'm having discussions with Bitcoin critics, the first thing that I ask is to make a case for Bitcoin and explain its value proposition. And immediately I can tell whether or not the person that I'm speaking to actually has any sort of credibility. So this kind of brings me to the question of what you think these opposing sides, particularly between Bitcoin and Ethereum, get most wrong about each other. That's the funny thing. I don't think they're getting anything wrong. I think they're simply assuming different application use cases 
And from that assumption spring all of the perspective. I don't know if I agree with that. Even on Twitter, when I see a lot of the Ethereum community explaining their value proposition on we can be a global money, we can be a store of value, and we don't need Bitcoin because it's a cult. I find that we're talking past each other and and there's no real effective way to solve this because we kind of misunderstand each other. Do you not see that? I don't think that a lot of the Ethereum community sees this as purely a Turing complete smart contract platform that is able to do things that Bitcoin can't do. And vice versa. I don't think a lot of the Bitcoin community sees Ethereum as being able to do things that Bitcoin can't do. A lot of people say, but we can do we can do smart contracts too. We can do side chains and drive chains and rootstock and omni and counterparty. And those come from two different perspectives. Those are the differences in perspective between developers and monetarists. And people are thinking about building a composable architecture of development environments and APIs and applications, modular components in Ethereum. And they think that they can solve money just as easily as a modular component. And Bitcoin people think that once you've solved money, you can do everything else on top. I disagree with both of those positions. But again, I don't particularly care. Meaning that I have an opinion. Other people have opinions. These opinions are not going to change how the market develops. These opinions are not going to change what applications each thing will be used for. And these opinions will be tested under adversarial conditions. Arguing between these opinions, to me, is a waste of time. If you understand which tool is best for a job, you're a better user of tools, right? If in your home you have a toolbox, right, 90% of what makes you handy is knowing which tool is the correct tool for the job and how to use it properly. If you miss that, then you just grab a hammer and you go do some plumbing with it. And yeah, maybe eventually you might be able to bash that pipe into shape, but your perception is colored by what tool you picked up and know how to use. So I don't care if people have different opinions. They can try and use whatever tool they want to do whatever job they want, and the market will decide if they're right or not. And my opinion doesn't have any more weight than anybody else's. So I find these debates to be a waste of time. Like You use what you want for what you want. This isn't about picking winners. And I think that difference in perception is limiting for the development of our ecosystem. That's a very fair point. And I think that a lot of the the conflicting narratives is because you're actually not an investor at heart, right? And so you kind of look at this more from a, how do I maximize the usage of this platform and how effectively can this platform provide and serve my needs? And so the discussion of which asset is going to appreciate over time is completely irrelevant. And so that I couldn't care less. And more importantly, I think that the people who do care a lot about that have insufficient information to draw conclusions, not just now, but for quite a while in the foreseeable future, they will have insufficient information to draw any conclusions, at which point it becomes pure ideology. It's factless opinion. And factless opinion is great for doing talking head shows, but it just becomes a popularity contest at that point, which is why I don't engage in these debates. Someone's going to be proven wrong by the market. More people are going to be proven wrong than right. And I'm patient enough to wait and see how it plays out. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Andreas. Thank you, Arjun, for joining me as well. Where can uh, listeners find you? 
A A N T O N O P, A Antonop, on Twitter, on YouTube, my website, and most of my content, if not all, is available under Creative Commons licenses. It's available for free to read, share, and use, and mash up, and in multiple languages. People can also support me on Patreon, which allows me to build more leverage and get more education to more people in more countries and more languages, which is my primary mission. Great. And Arjun, this is the first time that you're on our podcast as well. So where can listeners find you? On Twitter as well, at Arjun BLJ, A-R-J-U-N-B-L-J. Great. Much appreciated, guys. Really enjoyed the conversation. And until next time. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.